Parashas Bahar begins with the laws of Shemitah. Hashem spoke Bahar Sinai, it's called Parashas Bahar because that's where this, uh, where this command was given. Famous Rashi about why the Torah emphasizes Har Sinai, but the Parashas is about Shemitah. It says, you're going to enter Eretz Yisrael, the land shall rest. The land shall rest. How often, specifically? So, you shall plant your fields for six years, and six years you shall prune, six years you, pu- you, you prune your vineyards, gather your grain. However, the seventh year is a Shabbat Shabbaton, parallel language to the laws of Shabbos. What can't, you do on, what can't you do on the seventh year, the Shemitah year, the seventh year? In, liter- in the halakhic literature, it's sometimes called Shemitah, sometimes called Shvius. You can't do Sadecha lo Sizra, you can't plant your fields, Becharmecha lo Sizmar, you can't, uh, you can't um, prune your vineyards, you can't do Ketzira, you can't do Betzira, you can't do Zria. Those are three malachas, planting and harvesting and pruning, that you cannot do Midaraisa. There is a machlokis in the Gemara whether plowing is included, even though it's not explicitly mentioned as malacha daraisa. Those are the three or four malachas that are prohibited on a biblical level in Shemitah. Lots of other things are prohibited rabbinically, again, parallel to Shabbos, just as we find in the laws of Shabbos. We know there are certain things which are asr midaraisa, many other things which are asr midrabanan. And of course, there are major ramifications to that in cases of need or via non-Jew, in cases of people who are ill and so on. It is much easier to allow Malacha Drabana than Malacha Daraisa. So here in Shemitah also, as we'll discuss uh, soon, it is much easier to be lenient when we're dealing with Malachas Drabana than Malacha Daraisa. But Shemitah is the seventh year. Malacha Daraisa is three or four things planting, harvesting, pruning, maybe plowing. Lots of other things are Aster Midrabana. And so on. There are other laws of Shemitah. A little bit later in the Pasha, doesn't circum later, the Torah goes on. The Torah asks the obvious question. People are going to be worried. People are going to say, What are we going to eat? In agricultural society, you know, import-export market is not huge. If, if we don't plant for a year, first of all, how do the farmers make a living? If, they, if, if they're not planting, they have nothing to live on. And how does the whole society have food? So where is the food coming from? We're not planting. We're not gathering the tua. Hashem says, divine providence is the answer. I will grant you blessing to the crops of the sixth year, the last year you plant before the Shemitah. You'll have enough crops to tide you through the seventh year. For three years, that is the Torah's answer. Now, the halach of Shemitah, the laws of Shvius, appear in three phases in the, in, the, in the halachic literature. The first, of course, is Mishnah and Talmud. We don't have Talmud Bavli on Shemitah because, like most of Seder's Rahim, it wasn't practiced in Chutzlar, so the same as it's not practiced today. So it wasn't practiced in Chutzlar, so we don't have Talmud Bavli, but we have Mishnah, and we have various discussions uh, in passing in the Talmud Bavli about the, that's the first phase of the discussion, the laws in the Mishnah and the Talmud. We have the second phase of the discussion occurs in the 16th century in the time of the Shulchan Aruch and the, the flowering of Svardik Torah in Eretz Yisrael, in Turkey in general, in Eretz Yisrael, the Ottoman Empire in general, Eretz Yisrael in particular, the time we had the Beis Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Mabit, Rabbi Moshe of Trani, and many others who lived in that time. That was the second great uh, dis- major discussion of the, the laws of Shvius. The third discussion begins about 100 and, uh, 130, 150 years ago, when the Jews began to return to Eretz Yisrael in the modern era, and, of course, these questions arose again. 
The reason in between we don't have much discussion is because there was negligible Jewish presence in Eretz Yisrael from the Chorban. There was still some, but uh, you know, from, the, from, from, the, from the post-Talmudic times until throughout the medieval period, there was very little Jewish presence, and what there was wasn't very agricultural. When, when the Jews began to live there again at the time of the Beis Yosef, that, of course, necessitated a need to grapple with the questions, halacha lamasa. Then again, you know, after that, there, 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 were, there were always some Jews living there, but the, the, the questions came to the, to the, to, to the forefront again, that in, in the aliyahs of the late 19th and 20th century, as more and more Jews began, and more significantly, the Jews who came began to engage in agricultural work. So beginning, beginning primarily, as we'll see soon, about 130 years ago, in the Shemitah of Tafresh Memtes, in the Shemitah of 1889, that was when the discussions began in earnest. What do we do about Shemitah? How are we supposed to practice Shemitah? in the contemporary period. Now, as I said, there, there, there was precedent for much of this discussion in the 16th century, where we have major tshuvas by the pillars of Hara in the Sfarda community, dealing with many of the same questions that arose later. The great innovation of 1889, the great innovation that kicked off a, a, a tremendous controversy, which is still ongoing today, is the wholesale sale of the land to Arabs as a means of evading some of the prohibitions of Shemitah. In the time of the, in the 16th century, we already have some discussion of how the laws of Shemitah apply to non-Jewish property, to property that's purchased by a non-Jew from a Jew, to per- property that's leased by a non-Jew. But the, the wholesale, Mechir Chamet style, selling the, the land to the Arabs, that began to be done in, again, 130 years ago, in 1889. And, and there was a, a tremendous controversy, one of the greatest, most epic uh, halachic controversies in history, began then, and again, it, it, it's cyclical, like Shemitah, it, it, it kind of, uh, it, it, it ignites every seven years when the postgim, uh, especially the, those first few Shemitahs, there were epic controversies of some of the most bold-faced names in Halacha, where, where, where it had major clashes, uh, those first few Shemitahs, and even today, the, today it's kind of settled down, people, the, the battle lines are drawn, the trenches are, are full, and people have their positions, but even today, this machlokas has lasted where the, the Haredim and the more uh, reactionary forces typically do not accept the Heter Mechira. People like Rebbe Yashuv, following the Chazanish and others, do not accept it, while much of the, the non-Haredi rabbinate, the official chief rabbinate, and followers of Rav Kook and so on, do accept the Heter Mechira. So the, the laws of Shemitah themselves, despite the fact that they are discussed uh, the way the laws of Shabbos are and the Rishonim, the laws of Shemitah are vast, and the, the literature in Hetem Rechir in particular is vast. We, we aren't going to do a, a full systematic discussion of all the issues involved. They are extremely complicated and uh, extremely technical. I, I want to discuss, though, both from a historical and from a conceptual halachic and maybe from a you know, policy and hashkafic perspective as well, what some of the major issues of the, of the Hetem Rechir were, who, who, the, who some of the supporters were, who some of the opponents were. There's a fair amount of misunderstanding. Uh, people don't realize some of, the, some of the lay of the land here. I want to kind of give a uh, you know, s- s- somewhat uh, systematic, somewhat idiosyncratic survey of the Hatamachira and discuss uh, how things came to be the way they are today. So, as I mentioned earlier, the Hatamachira is styled in the manner of Machira's Chametz. Very often you hear people wonder, why is there so much controversy about the Hatem Mechira? We do it for Mechira's Chametz. We do it in other contexts as well. And that's not a bad question. And the truth is that that question is raised, that, que- that analogy was discussed by the Gedolei HaPoskim 
who were for and against the Hatcher Mechira. Some of the earliest, 130 years ago, some of the Gedolei Torah who, who, who advocated for the Hatcher Mechira, who endorsed it, explicitly made this analogy. We're, we'll, we'll see the first in a moment. They, they said, you know, why is this worse than Mechira's summits? We do this all the time. This is established Jewish practice to engage in these types of legal fictions. The halachic term for legal fiction is Ha'arama. Ha'arama means a trick or a ruse. But the idea of making these kind of on-paper pro forma sales, which aren't uh, intended to have any real commercial validity, the, it is established practice that we do this in a number of contexts. Mechira's Chametz is perhaps the most famous, but there are a variety of other ones as well. The, another famous one, w- with roots even earlier than Mechira's Chametz, perhaps, is the idea of Mechira's Bechar. Balach is a, a human Bechar, you do a pinyin up then. An animal Bechar has no pinyin. You cannot be poda. You cannot be put an animal bachar, it has kedusha, and it's a tremendous burden. If there's no mikdash and there's no carbon, you're stuck. You can't do anything with the animal. So the Talmud already recommends that, you, that, that if you have a, sell the mother, sell the, the fetus while it's in utero. And this was established practice in, in, among the Jews for hundreds of years. Uh, farmers, animal, uh, animal husbandry people would sell, would do these mechiris chamet style sales to avoid the problem of bachar. And again, you know, there, was, there was no question that would take it back. It was very much a on-paper sale, but they did it, and, uh, and that was routinely done. And there are a variety of cases in halacha where we do this. Hatariska is perhaps a similar, a similar arrangement. So that there are a variety of contexts in halacha in which we do rely on these uh, harama type of sales. So th- that was one of the questions that came up front and center on both sides of the argument, uh, is there anything different? Is there anything somehow uniquely problematic about the sale of the land? It's larger, it's on more of a national scale, it's, it's even more you know, kind of unimaginably uh, haramadic than, uh, than the sale, but in principle it's, it's pretty much, uh, it's pretty much on, on the, on the, certainly on the same continuum as Mechiras Chametz, as Mechiras Bachar. So, 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 so why is it so, uh, why is this such a novelty? And the truth is, this argument was made, as I said, 130 years ago, in, in the very first round of the discussion. This was made by one of the great supporters of the Hatcher Mechira, and that was the, in the Sefer Yeshua's Malcha. The Sefer Yeshua's Malcha was written by Rabbi Yisrael Yeshua of Kutna, actually as an amusing bit of trivia. Uh, he, he, he was, his full name apparently was Rabbi Yisrael Eliyahu Yeshua of Kutna. His parents named him after three great, uh, three great, Gedolei Torah in Jewish history. Yisrael was after Yisrael Baal Shem Tov. Eliyahu was after the Gona Vilna, which is already a, a mind-boggling juxtaposition. And Yehoshua, par- sorry, oxymoron, right? I guess they felt, you know, synthesis. They felt that uh, we, can, we can get the best of both worlds. And Yehoshua was after the Pnei Yehoshua. He apparently signed his name, though he, he didn't sign Eliyahu. He signed his name Yisrael Yehoshua because the last two letters of Yisrael, Aleph Lamed, and the first two of Yehoshua was Eliyahu. So by signing Yisrael Yehoshua, he felt he was getting all three. All right. Anyway, he, he, was, he was among the Gedolei Aposkim of that time, 130 years ago. And at that first meet, when that first Shemitah came, 1889, and there was tremendous pressure. There was, it was claimed by elements of the farming community in Eretz Israel that there would be tremendous problems if they had to observe Shemitah in the proper way. Now, there were questions whether the problems were as, as serious as they were made out to be. There, there are elaborate historical discussions, Baron Rothschild and French managers and the legalities involved. I, I, I'm not going to go through, I, I don't fully understand all the details, and there were, there were arguments whether the details were presented accurately, but there, there was elaborate uh, socioeconomic uh, background to this, but the, the claim was made, the claim was, uh, the claim was made to various Rabbanim that observing Shemitah at that time was going to 
caused tremendous hardship for the, for the Jewish community in Israel. It was a tenuous existence to begin with. They were faced with all kinds of difficulties, hostile Arabs and uh, economic uh, privation and so on. And the claim was, uh, they had barely a toehold in the land, the claim was it would be very difficult to observe Shemitah properly. Now, much of the debate in those early years, for the next few decades, much of the debate uh, around, around using these, the, the Hatrim Rechira had to do with the question of how serious is the problem. Some of the opponents, you know, especially in the second and third uh, gener- iteration of this argument, would say, even those great Gedolim who were leaning in earlier generations, things were much worse then. They're not so bad now. Or things were presented as being bad, they're not really so bad. So much of the debate actually revolved around this question of how bad were things really in Eretz Israel. I'm not going to try to resolve that question. But the, this, of course, is an important principle in halacha, that shas uh, is, is ground for leniency. The, the, throughout Yeridea, we're more lenient when there's a case of great need. We can't just change the halacha because of that, but when there are different opinions, when there are minority opinions, when there are variant interpretations of things, we're often, we're often willing to choose a more lenient approach when there is a shas So many of the early Rabbanim explicitly said that they were conditioning their rulings on the assumption that it was a great shas And as I said, that's why in later generations, Many of the more moderate uh, opponents of the Hetem Rechira said, we have great respect for the early authorities who ruled leniently. However, they, they, they did so because it was tremendously difficult. Today we're stronger, we have more economic power, we have other alternatives. Today the need is less. Others would argue the need is not so less. Again, I, I'm not going to get involved in the, in the reality of this, how, how, how great is the need. But this, was, this has always been one of the key points of contention that we're, we're obviously going to be much quicker to be lenient in cases of great need. And the question is, how great is the need at any given point in time? Yes? We assume throughout this entire discussion that Shemitah, both, both today and during Bayashini, is Durabana? That's an important question. So the, that, that's kind of an important, uh, I should have gotten to that first. That is really an important background question here. What is the status of Shemitah today in particular, Bayashini, but certainly today? What is the status of Shemitah, Bismanazia? And that really is the real background behind this whole discussion. So first of all, before I even get to that, I meant to make this point earlier. This year is commonly assumed to be Shemitah. It's not actually entirely clear what year Shemitah is. There are actually three or four different opinions in the halachic tradition what year Shemitah is. This actually came up in the time of the Beis Yosef. There were those who argued for certain leniencies on the grounds and were not even sure whether any particular year is Shemitah. And this came up again in the the century ago when the time of the Beis Halevi, when they they began to... There were those who argued for leniency on the grounds that were not actually 100% sure what year Shemitah is. The halachic tradition has reached a consensus, though. Even though there was a debate about this in Gonic and medieval period, the halachic tradition has reached a consensus that this year is Shemitah, that every seventh year, and this year is one of them, is Shemitah. In practice, in, 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 in the vast majority of the discussion I've seen, this point is not uh, seriously up for debate. And in the vast majority of the halachic literature, both sides are willing to stipulate that this year actually is Shemitah, that this year and every, every year, Modulo 7 from this year, is, uh, is Shemitah. So... So the, the, the question that Lewis raised, though, is that is Shemitah obligatory? And that is a major, major debate. There are opinions that Shemitah is Daraisa bismanazeh. Some Akronim argue Shemitah is Daraisa. The, the prevalent opinion held by most poskim is that Shemitah is Drabanan. And there is an opinion that it's not even knowing at all Nekra Din, it's just Amidas Hasidus. The, the, the reasons why or why not, they have to do with the connection of Shemitah and Yovel. The, 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 the Torah seems to connect uh, 
Shemitah and Yovel, and there's a famous drush in the Gemara that Yovel only applies when the Jewish community was, uh, was, was, was the majority that was resident in Israel, which has not been the case for a long time, although some post have said that given demographic trends that you know, we're on a path to changing that, that in, I don't know how long it's going to take, but that in the, in the conceivable future there may come a time where there might be Rov in which case we might have to revert to Shemitah being much more stringent as a Daraisa. But the, the dominant view in most poskim, the, 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 the most widely held view is probably that it is Durabanan. The Nitziv, the Rebbe the, Yehuda Berlin, he was a famous, he was a major opponent in that early period of 1889. He was an early opponent of the Heter Mechira. As Rebbe Yezer Malamed points out, in, in certain periods of the controversy, those who were opposed to the Mechira tended to be ideologically anti-Zionist and were skeptical about the whole Zionist project, and those who were quicker to endorse the Heter Mechira, most famously Rav Cook, were among the great supporters of the Zionist project. This is not, enti- not always true, though. It, uh, they don't line up so well, and the Nitziv is one of the famous exceptions. The Nitziv, as is well known, was, one, was, was actually very, very, felt very warmly toward the Chovetzion project, and he himself... In, in his Jew himself, he, is, uh, he expresses great admiration and pride in the, in the Jews who are settling Eretz Israel. He actually was very supportive. Again, this is pre uh, the later political iterations of the state, but this is the very early the Chovetzian movement in the 19th century. The Nitziv actually was not ideologically opposed to the settler movement at all, the way it existed in his time, certainly, and yet he was very much opposed to the Hatimachira, partly because he felt Shemitah was Daraisa, which is that, that was his Shita, but the but, but, but yes, they, they, that's a critical point. The postkim who argued for leniency often did so building off an assumption, like Rav Cook does this, for example, building off an assumption that Shemitah today is not Daraisa, may not even be Drabanan, but is almost certainly not Daraisa. So th- th- that is certainly an important question, because just as we said that we're more lenient in the case of Shasat Chak, we're also certainly more lenient, as we all know, in cases of rabbinic laws. We take rabbinic laws very seriously, but at the end of the day, the, 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 the system of halacha allows us much more latitude for leniency when we're dealing with a rabbinic prohibition as opposed to a biblical one. So yes, so as many of the postmen who were lenient, I'm not sure if they all were, but many of the postmen who were lenient did so based on the assumption that the ikr halacha is that it is at most an isr drabana. So one of the first postkim who signed, they refer to them as the shloshes rabbanim, the, the three rabbanim who signed on the early hetar mechira were three great European rabbanim, the question spilled over from the Israeli Rabbanim out to Chutzlarts. It came to a number of European Rabbanim. And among the first three great uh, rabbis who endorsed the Hatim Rechira was Rabbi Yisrael Yeshua of Kutna in, his, in, in a number of different letters, a number of tshuvas and letters. And he makes this analogy to Mechira's Chametz very, very explicitly. He, in, one of his, in one of his tshuvas he writes, he says that, he, he, in one of his tshuvas he writes that the... Tamani, I don't understand the opposition. He says selling karka is heter pashut. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a well understood, you know, standard heter. He says everyone who lives in Chutzlarz relies on it for mechiras bechar, for mechiras chametz, for uh, mechiras Shabbos. The halacha is a, a, Jew ca- a Jew can't have a business in which he's a partner that's operating on Shabbos because even though there's a non-Jewish partner as well who's going to actually operate the business, if the Jew is an actual partner in the business, that's a problem. So there was a tradition in, uh, in, in Europe that developed called the Shtar Shabbos, the Mechira for Shabbos. There, there, there are ways of, again, structuring a very on-paper type of sale 
to assign the business on Shabbos to the non-Jewish partner and to give the Jew a corresponding share in the profits for the weekday business. Again, they, they would find a very legalistic way without really altering, as I understand it, with, as far as I know, without really altering the way the business actually operated and ran, they would find a on-paper way of structuring the business differently to avoid the Isra of Shabbos. Someone actually just asked me about this. Someone asked me that he's starting some kind of venture and there's going to be some work done on Shabbos by his non-Jewish partner. He asked me uh, you know, how to structure this. I said, it's a standard thing. I don't actually know how to do it. You know, it's, it's like, like Mechira Summits. There are standard forms, standard protocols. It's you know, less common than Mechira Summits, but it's, uh, I refer them to people who, uh, you know, who, who do this kind of thing, who are familiar with, uh, with the standard protocols used. So the, the, the Yeshua's Malcho says, these are all standard things. These are well-established traditions to do these pro forma sales, he says. So I, I don't know why anybody should think that this is a problematic thing. He say, he, again, he, there are several different issues raised by the Hatram Rechira. One is in the, in the laws of Shemitah, whether it works. We'll discuss that in a moment. But in terms of the fact that it's a harama, that it's not serious, he says, I don't know what the problem is. It's a, he says it's, it's exactly the same as all these other pro forma sales that we do. He says, and then the obvious question is, post ask, if it's really such a good idea, why didn't Chazal think of this? And when, when Chazal wrote about Shemitah and the Gemara and the various discussions in the Talmud, they always seem to treat Shemitah as a real issue, as something that should actually be observed. And they didn't go saying, let's just do a Mechir Eschametz and get rid of Shemitah. So he says, of course, the ideal thing is to observe Shemitah. The Torah says, but to VCS Berchasi, in a proper Jewish society, where there's a robust society, a robust economy, we have the bracha of Hashem, he says, and uh, that, that'll be lots of, that'll be lots of, uh, that, that'll be lots of, uh, of food. In such a case, we can afford to actually observe Shemitah. In our case, he says, we have, a, we have barely a toehold in Eretz Yisrael, ma'at mina ma'at, of people who actually have ag- agriculture. Again, I'm not sure why he's not relying on the bracha in such a case, but he feels, I guess, the bracha works with, like, derakateva, with some means of uh, realistically making it work out, and we're, we're so precarious to begin with, he says, we're, 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 we're much more entitled to look for uh, workarounds where, where we're so precarious to begin with than we were when we had a proper, robust Jewish society. He points out again that he says, Rabbanei Sfarad, who were far greater than the Chachme Ashkenaz of our generation. I assume he means, I saw somebody translate this, I saw a Sfardic site, a Sfardic Halacha Yomit, Ravavadia site, say he was referring to the contemporary Sfardim who he felt were far greater than the Ashkenazim. Not convinced that's an accurate translation. I think he likely meant the Sfardim of 500 years ago, Beis Yosef and his colleagues who, 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 wrote, who wrote some of the foundations for the Hatram Rechira. I assume he means they were the ones who he was saying were far greater than the Ashkenazim. I'm not sure. But either way, he says the Rabbane Sfarad, who were far greater than the Ashkenazim, they allowed uh, the, the various aspects of the Hatem Rechira, he says, and so on. And how can we just reject their Torah and say we know better, he says. He says, and he, he's very sharply critical, he says, but the Pachzusim of the Ashkenazim, it, it's the, the, the excitability and the, the, the lack of steadiness of the Ashkenazim, he says, is causing a machshela gedola, because by rejecting Hatem Rechira, you're causing people to just give up and just be over this or without any Hatem, he says. So he says that, and, and this, is, this is a public policy thing that comes up in, in many of the arguments of Hatem Rechira. A posek you know, has to pass in not just the, the halacha abstractly, he has to take into account what are the consequences of the psaki he's going to give on the ground. I, th- that doesn't mean you can change, distort the halacha when it's not correct, but if, but if you're talking about giving a hatter grudgingly b'shatzot chak, and you're contemplating being a purist and insisting that the halacha be followed to the letter, sometimes that can backfire, and if you don't give the hatter, then worse things will happen, so the posek has to decide whether uh, Posek has to decide whether the, it's a judgment call, whether, whether a heter is a good idea in such a case or not. Rab, Rabbi 
Israel Yishuv Kutner felt that the Heter, there was ample basis for it, ample precedent, ample, ample precedent both in terms uh, of the other types of uh, Harama Machiris that we do, as well as the rulings of the Gedalei Asfardim. Therefore, he felt that the, that the Heter Machiru was fine, and he didn't understand the opposition to it. Now, we have to understand the mechanics of it. Why does it follow that if you sell the land, it's Mutter, it's still Eretz Yisrael, it's still Shemitah, when it comes to chametz, it's easy, it's easy to understand. The Torah says, you can't own chametz. If I sell it, I don't own it, so, I don't, so I'm not worried about it. How does it work for Shemitah? So this is a, a complex interlocking web of halachic principles, which are all subject to debate. There is a Talmudic debate called Yesh Kenyan Legoi Be'eretz Yisrael Hafkia Kedusha Sa'aretz Mide Meiser, Mide Shemitah, that, uh, that if a non-Jew buys property, that takes off the Kedusha of the Aretz in a halachic sense. I'm not sure about it in a mystic sense, but in a halachic sense, it removes the, the halachic kedusha from the aretz. It's machlokah, it's yesh kenyan and ain kenyan. Some posts can distinguish whether the halachas are biblical or in the first place or not. If it's drabana, we can say ain kenyan. Even if you say that the, that the ownership of the non-Jew does not remove the kedusha, the halachic kedusha, some say it still allows the it still allows non-Jews to do work, maybe even Jews to do work. So there are a lot, a lot of technicalities in the laws of Shemitah, which I'm going to gloss over, about whether in the first place we assume that a sale does have the power to alleviate the prohibitions of Shemitah. But we'll just accept in a general sense that according to many poskim, ownership of the land by a non-Jew serves to remove, to ameliorate at least some of the prohibitions. For example, Rabbi Yisrael Yeshua of Kutin himself recommended that they do not allow Jews to actually work on these fields during Shemitah. They should limit it to non-Jews working on the field. If a Jew owns the field entirely, he can't even have a non-Jew work on the field. But if, the, but if, you, do, if you do a sale to a non-Jew, a formal sale, again, a, a harama sale, a sham sale like this, you can at least be makil to have non-Jews work on the field. That's strongly what he recommends. He says we should allow a zecher for Shemitah and avoid doing melachah daraisa. As I mentioned earlier, he makes this list. He says melachah daraisas are very few. They're just planting harvesting, and pruning, and maybe plowing. And even plowing is a machlok, as he says, so b'shasad chak, you can maybe rely on the lenient view and have Yisrael do it also if you need to. But just avoid those three malachas, he says. A Jew shouldn't do those three malachas. A Jew shouldn't plant, a Jew shouldn't harvest, a Jew shouldn't prune. Ideally, a Jew shouldn't plow. Have non-Jews do those things for you. And the rest of the work, either the rest of the work even a Jew can do because those malachas are drabanan, and for, and for Drabanans, again, we're sorry for these different things. For Drabanans, after you've sold it, you can rely on all these different opinions that, uh, that the work can be done, and that will save you from the, from the great uh, calamity you're worried about. If the, if the fields lie fallow, economic catastrophe co- uh, occurs, you can avoid this by having Arabs do a few of the key jobs and Jews doing some of the other jobs and sell the land, and that's fine. That's what he recommended. This was the ruling of three major Rabbanim at the time, Rabbi Yisrael Yeshua of Kutna, Rav Shmuel Mohalaver of, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, of Bialystok, and there was a third Rav involved. And the most important Rav who was lenient was Rabbi Yisrael Khan Inspector. Rabbi Yisrael Khan Inspector was the, without question, the greatest European, uh, Lithuanian, Lithuanian, Ashkenazic halachist of the time. He was, he was looked up to as the Rabbin Shlokol Bnei Agola and Ashkenaz, and Ashkenazim looked up to Rav Spector as the, the outstanding authority of his time. He wasn't the initiator of all this, but uh, the various Rabbanim involved approached him to sign on to their hetter, and he did. This is not really debated. It, uh, he, this is not debated. He, he, he signed on to their hetter. His reasoning is, uh, has been debated because apparently he wrote an elaborate uh, 
an elaborate analytical uh, study of the problem, which has been lost. Much of his writings were lost, apparently, in World War I and the turmoil. What we have mostly is letters, kind of informal letters, where he declared his, where he, where he threw his support behind the Hatter and secondary quotes of, but unfortunately, we don't have a, a detailed analysis by him. But it's not really contested that he supported the, he supported the Hatter, and his, his, his support is one of the, you know, people talk about, every now and then you read, you know, some of the zealots or some of the ignorant uh, writers on the topic who claim that the, the, that the important kedolim were always against the Hatcher Mechira, that's ridiculous, and people like Rizalhan Inspector supported it, uh, and so on. Again, in that early period, there, there are those who argue more and more reasonably that it was in particular circumstances, particular Shasat Chak, whether he, ended, whether he was even correctly informed of the, of the details of the Shasat Chak. So you can quibble around exactly what he supported and how broadly his support should be construed. Many of the Rabbanim said that we're issuing a Hatter for one, one year at a time, one Shemitah at a time. It has to be reviewed in future Shemitahs. But at least in that case, in those circumstances, Ritzel Khan Inspector was the, was the outstanding authority who signed on to the, to the Hatter Mechir. So the first question is, does the Hatter Mechira work? And we've so far discussed two of the issues. One issue is, in terms of the technical laws of Shemitah, does a sale, even a real sale, does a sale of land to a non-Jew, does that actually serve to uh, allow various things to be done on the land? And many posts are willing to say yes. The second question, which was more controversial, was the, the question of harama, that can we rely on a, uh, on a, on, on a sham sale to, uh, to do anything in halacha, those who supported it, like the Yeshua's Malcha, said, why is this any worse than Mechira Samet? Those who opposed it, first of all, we should note that Mechira Samet was not without controversy as well. It is widely used today, but it's not without controversy. The Vilna Gaon famously was opposed to Mechira Samet. He said he would not eat Samet that was sold on Pesach because he, he, he felt that this Mechira Samet was, was a haram and was not valid. There were, there were others who, uh, Rebarak Tumen Frankel was, uh, was, was opposed to the Opposed to the Mechiras Chametz. He, he, he argued about it at length with the Chasim Sofer. The Chasim Sofer strongly defended Mechiras Chametz. Rabarak Tumim Frankel said, It's not, it's Harama. He says, Miyom Sham Dal Daiti. You know, from when I, he had, I think, various issues. I think one of them was Harama. He said, From when I, you know, got, from when I, from, from when I uh, reached an age of, uh, of reflection, he says, I, I would not drink product. I would not drink beer. That was, that, that was, that, that was uh, sold over Pesach, he says. I would not consume products that were sold over Pesach. So there is controversy about, uh, about uh, Mechira's Chametz. Even today, there are those who don't rely on it. There are two versions of the Chumrah. Some people won't rely on it for their own Chametz because then it's, a, it's an issue of an issue of, of owning Chametz on Pesach, but they still will buy from a, from a grocery store that sold its Chametz because at that point, after Pesach, it's only an issue of a knas, a penalty, and it's only, it's only Drabanan. And the store arguably didn't do anything wrong if they followed reputable halachic authorities. Some people won't even do that. Well, won't even, won't, some people won't even buy from a store. The Gon and Frankel Tumim, he wouldn't even buy, apparently, from Chametz that was sold after, on Pesach at all. So Mechiris Chametz is not without its, uh, its, 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 uh, its discontents also. And Mechiris Chametz also, at least in the earlier centuries, the pressure, like Mechiris Haaretz for Shemitah, the pressure was economic pressure. The pressure, it, it wasn't started for our half-finished boxes of pasta and Cheerios. The Mechiris Chametz was started for liquor merchants who, who couldn't afford to dispose of their stock. They, 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 they couldn't sell it at fair prices. They wouldn't have stock to do the business after Pesach. It was started for economic necessity because of people who simply couldn't afford to, uh, generally businesses couldn't afford. And throughout the, I think, the, throughout the 19th century still, Mechiris Chametz was largely done out of commercial necessity. It still is done that way at the grocery stores and so on. 
the today it, uh, some, at some point the minute became that everyone instead of throwing out his uh, his box of Cheerios everyone just sells chametz and that's again that, 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 that's even less basis to rely on that but again the, the minute is that we do but the Mechiris chametz is not totally without its uh, without its uh, objections as well but certainly it, it, it's, it's certainly true that it, that mechiris chametz is widely accepted there, there are very few rabbanim today who will rule in public you're not allowed to rely on mechiris chametz it's iser it's uh, it's, a, it's an avera to do it, and yet uh, Hetra Mechira has less support. So some have argued that the Harama is, uh, is a whole new order of magnitude, an entire country you're selling to one Arab. You know, you know, it, it doesn't make sense on a national security level. In, in the early years, there were those who argued that they weren't going through the formalities of the land registry. There were some who argued that to sell land, you have to go through title. The system in Israel is different from the U.S., but there are rules about how to transfer title that weren't being followed, something called the tabu, based on Turkish uh, land registry systems. Some were arguing that since they weren't even following legal formalities, and the truth is, as I've discussed before, those objections were actually made in the 19th century to Mechiras Chametz as well. There wasn't a land registry for Chametz, but there were certain European rules of contract which were widely flouted by Mechiras Chametz. For example, there was a rule in many European countries, we don't have this in the U.S., but there was a rule in many European countries that contracts, in order to be valid, had to be written in the, in the official state language. And Jews wrote them in Hebrew or whatever they were, which were, which were legally not valid. Postkin dealt with that. Some postkin felt that was a real problem. Other postkin felt it doesn't matter. There was a stamp tax. There, there, there were, you know, we, we fought the American Revolution. It had to do with the stamp tax. There were stamp taxes that in order for a contract to be legally valid, you had to purchase a stamp, which was essentially paying a tax, and get the stamp paper. And the Jews weren't doing that from Mechiris Chametz. Postkin actually struggled with these questions of can Mechiris Chametz be valid if it's not recognized by the law as valid? And, it, and similar questions were discussed in the context of Mechiris Haaretz as well. Now I guess the Jews control the country. I guess I don't know what they what they currently do, but it shouldn't be that difficult for them to structure the law in such a way that recognizes Mechiras Chametz as legally valid as an exception to the regular rules. But it wasn't always like that. Certainly in earlier years, so these questions were all debated. But the the harama and the, and the broader question of whether the sale is a technically valid sale were one of the big issues. Again, the the Shuas Malcha makes a very you know cogent and straightforward point. It's not that different conceptually from. Uh, not that different conceptually from Mechiras Chametz, and many people still make that point, and it, it, it is a powerful point, and there are some who say it's different, but uh, it, it is certainly a, a serious argument. Yes? In terms of Haram, in any of these chubos, do the rabbis list criteria or rules for Haram? I mean, the case of Mechiras Chametz is no Yeram and the Gemara says, you know, be on the side. So here it says, Sabcha. So that's a good question. The question is, do we find any kind of uh, general abstract rules for when we say harama when we don't? So actually, there's a very interesting question that comes up, that when it comes to Mechiris Chametz itself, there, are, there was a school in the Akronim that argued that har- but we're only, we only rely on harama on these type of sham sales when the Isra is drabanan to begin with. Chametz is Nisidaraisa, so why would we rely on Harama? So there was a famous Shita of the Bukhar Shar, one of the great postkim of several centuries, several centuries ago. He, of the, he argued, the Tvua Shar, I'm sorry, the, the Tvua Shar argued that, the Bukhar Shar, the Tvua Shar, the, the, he argued that, that Chametz is really reduced to a Drabanan by Bitl. We do Bitl Chametz, we say Kal Chamira, we nullify all the Chametz. On a Daraisa level, that eliminates the problem. The rabbi said we can't rely on that because you might find they're needed, or because you might not do it, 
that's rabbinic, and therefore he said that, yeah, we wouldn't really rely on Harama for Nisr Daraisa, but Mechiris Chametz is Drabanan. The Chametz has been reduced to a problem of Drabanan. Other poskim very sharply disagreed with that analysis. They said, you're not mavatal anything that you're selling. If you're selling it, that means you're recognizing it as yours until you sell it. You're not mavatal it. So Bittel and, uh, and Mechira are mutually inconsistent. So anything that you're selling is not part of the Bittel, and therefore the, the, the Mechira better work on a Daraisa level. So they either said that it's, the Harama works on a Daraisa level, or they felt that it wasn't a Harama, but that's one issue right away. One issue is, are, do we rely on Harama for a Daraisa? So again, as I said, most poskim, certainly those who are willing to rely on the Hetem Mechira, were willing to, 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 were willing to uh, rely on the opinions that, that Shemitah is Drabana Bismanazeh. But yes, if, if, like we said, if we get to that point where Rov Yoshev if we get to the point where Shemitah is Daraisa, we may very well have less basis to rely on Harama. In terms of the other rules of when do we say Harama, when not, at that point, it becomes much less hazy. Yes, the, the, the Chametz, we rely on the fact that it says Lecha, because th- th- that, that's not even because of Harama. That's because the reason we can sell the Chametz in the first place, a real sale. Let's say we do an actual sale, but the non-Jew hasn't taken delivery yet. That's okay. I, I can have his Chametz in my basement. Uh, he says, I can't make it till tomorrow. I'll come by and Chalamod with my truck and carry it off. The reason, that's certainly Mutter, according to all opinions, that, that a real, real valid sale is certainly okay on Pesach. The reason that's okay, even if the chametz is in my premises, is because, as, as Arnie said, because it says lecha, and it's not it, lecha means yours. If it's not yours, it's mutter. The Arama just says that uh, a, a, a kind of sham mechira is the equivalent of a real mechira. So shemitah as well, as we said, the first question you have to ask yourself is: Does a real sale eliminate all or some of the problems of shemitah? The, the prohibitions of Shemitah, and if it does, then the question is, does Harama, is Harama good enough? Beyond that, what are the rules for Harama, when yes, when not? As we said, we have Heteriska, and Heteriska is another example of, uh, of something that some people were you know, considered uh, dubious. The Shiva of Arnold mentioned to me recently that he, that he uh, an account of a certain person, a pious Jew in Yerushalayim, who when he, when, when he married a child, I think, he, he, he wanted Edim who were kosher according to all opinions, and aid who commits a virus is not acceptable. So he wanted to find Edim who didn't rely on Heteriska. And in Yushalayim that was difficult because the banks are all Jewish, so anyone who has any, any, any dealings with the bank, whether savings accounts that pay interest, mortgages, or, or overdraft accounts, which are very common in Israel, the form of credits and so on, credit cards are all are all problematic if you're dealing with Israeli companies and they all rely on Hatariskas. He found some guy who was basically off the grid who didn't, uh, who didn't have a bank account or, I think, or, I, or it was stipulated that he, that he, he, he refused all overdraft. Uh, he got him to, to, you know, to, to not do any overdraft and so on. So yes, Hatariska, one of the reasons it's problematic is because it is also really a kind of harama that it's, Hatariska restructures the loan as, a, as an equity investment, as a, as, as a part equity investment. And again, nobody really means that. And no, nobody really, everyone thinks of it as a loan that's been koshered by a, by a Hatariska. So yeah, Hatariska suffers from some of the same problems. And it's, uh, and it's a, uh, so yeah, so what the rules of Harama are, how we define them, I, I, I don't think it is, it is that well defined in Halacha. I just want to talk briefly about one final issue, which, which, which comes up in the, in the Hatramachira. And that was an issue that was also, again, it was discussed by the earliest post-Kim 130 years ago. But this was one of the Chazanish's the most, uh, the Chazanish is one of the most famous of the opponents of the Hetra Mechira. He was, uh, again, he was relatively late to the discussion, in the writing decades after the argument had began. But when he wrote his Sefer Chazanish, which was incredibly influential among, among various factions of the, of the Haredim in Israel, certainly it became one of the most influential halachic works of the 20th century. 
he was very much against the Heter Mechira. One of his objections was an entirely different objection, nothing to do with Shemitah, nothing to do with Harama, nothing to do with uh, anything we've discussed until now. He had a completely different, I mean, he had some objections about Shemitah as well, but one of his signature objections was there is a, there is a curious prohibition, I mean, it's not curious, but there's an interesting prohibition against selling land in Israel to a non-Jew. The Torah says, Lo uh, that Lo uh, is interpreted to mean various things by Chazal. One of the things you can't do is you can't sell land in Israel to a non-Jew. N- nothing to do with you know, national security necessarily. A single, as, a private, uh, as a private purchaser, you cannot sell, you're not allowed to sell land in Israel to a non-Jew, to an Isser Daraisa. So this, this, this problem, of course, was recognized. This is, this is not news. This is, this is a Talmudic uh, statement. So yes? Yes. Absolutely, and I, I, we're going to discuss that in detail in a moment. That, that's exactly one of the key issues. That, that that's, enti- that's exactly on point. We'll, we'll get to that in just one moment. So there is an Israel of Sechanim, which, as he said, goes back to the Gemara. Well, Sechanim means several things. One of the prohibitions is selling land to a non-Jew, and the question then arose. Even if we'll assume the Hatem Mechira works, and we don't worry about Harama, and a, and, a, and a valid sale would serve to eliminate the, the concern, certain concerns of Shemitah, how are you allowed to sell land to a non-Jew? And again, this was not an innovation of the Chazanish. This, this, this objection was discussed, was already dealt with by the earliest Rabbanah who dealt with the question, including Rabbi Yisrael Yeshua of Kutna. He dealt with this question himself. Rav Cook dealt with it, and of course, all the early postkim who dealt with the question dealt with it. And they had a variety of reasons why they felt there was no prohibition in this context to selling land to a to, 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 to selling the land to a non-Jew. One of the reasons is, is the one you brought up. One of the reasons, which is discussed at some length, for example, by Rav Cook, he says is that the is that the that that the issue is only to sell it to an Ovid of Adizar, He says he says. He says, it's like Mechiras Chametz, which we're knowing to do B'Shasat Chak. Again, he, Rav Kook seemed to think Mechiras Chametz also was, only, uh, was not ideal. It was only something we did B'Shasat Chak. We can, we can do this also B'Shasat Chak, he said. We can rely, he says, on the assumption that Yishma'elim, She'enam, Ovdev Adazara, in, in the Mishpat Kohen, he says that Yishma'elim, Hornat, Ovdev Adazara, there's no Isser of Chania B'Karka. He says, we can assume Yishma'elim, Hornat, Ovdev Adazara. I actually covered this back in a share I gave a while ago. Where we, where we discussed at length whether Yishma'elim were considered Avdev Adazar, the Rambam says they are not, and that is the consensus of most poskim that Islam is not considered a, a, a idolatry. There is a minority opinion that says that it is, but, but, but the dominant view is that Islam is not Avodazara, and therefore if Cook is taking that for granted, and therefore that was one of the Heterim, is to rely on the, on the idea that the prohibition is limited to Avdev Adazara, does not apply to, to, to modern Arabs, modern Muslims. Now, this point was debated. The Chazonish did not accept this because the Chazonish said that it applies to any non-Jew, at least unless, unless he becomes a Gertoshev. A Gertoshev is a kind of a, kind of a resident alien, a, a, non-Jewish, uh, a non-Jewish resident of Israel who has formally committed to observing the seven Noahide laws and renouncing idolatry. And Gertoshev, in the time of the Talmud, was a formal process. There would be a basin involved, and he would have to formally accept the Gertoshev formally accept the, the status of Gertoshev. 
just like today we have bureaucracy, they had, they had, you have to go through a formal process. I mean, it's lavdala, that was a halakhic requirement, but uh, they had a, a process you'd have to go through. So the Chazanish and some of the stringent authorities ruled, we don't really have the process of Gertosha of Ismanazeh, and therefore, whether someone personally worships idols or not is not an issue. He has the status of a non-Jew. Maybe this depends on, as you said, the Gersin, the Gemara. I, I, I don't have all the details of the Sugi on my fingertips, but the Chazanish maintain that even someone who, is, who we would not view as being over the Zara, the prohibition still applies to him. And this, is one of, this, this exact question is one, was one of the great debates, whether selling land to an Arab, to a Muslim who's not over the Zara, whether that would, rely, whether that would uh, avoid the problem because he's not an over the Zara. The, the, those who were lenient felt that that was one more basis to be lenient. There, there, there were several other reasons why Poskin felt that the, the prohibition of Los Sechanim would not apply, even aside from the question of idolater versus uh, monotheist, that there is an argument based on Rishonim that Los Sechanim only applies when we're giving something up, when we don't have an ulterior motive, when it's not in our ultimate interest. But a gift, which is really being done for our benefit rather than the recipients, is not subject to Los Sechanim. The, the Ran makes this point in a famous, uh, famous Talmudic passage. The, the, the halacha is you're not, really, you're not supposed to free, manumit a, uh, a Canaanite slave, but the Gemara says somebody once did because uh, he needed a minion. For other reasons, he needed a minion, he, he once did. To, so the Ran says, what about Los Sechanim? How are you allowed to do that? It violates... So there's another prohibition of Los Sechanim. Besides, we said it, the Talmud gives several different uh, aspects of the prohibition. Besides giving a non-Jew ownership of land in Israel, another prohibition is giving arbitrary gifts to a non-Jew. Many of our gifts are, post can say, our mutter. Any gift, again, any gift which is given with a... Uh, certainly with an ulterior motive. You tip someone because you want good service. You tip someone to avoid Chil Hashem. You tip someone because it's a... You know, it's, it's in your enlightened self-interest to maintain good relations with someone. Post can have a lot of hetarim on this for, for a variety of reasons, but just to give a gift out of the goodness of your heart to an idolater is, again, it's a discussion for another time how that actually applies. Lamaisa is also a prohibition, so the Ran asks, also another, another version, another aspect of Los Lachanim. Ran says, how can you do it? So the Ran says, you can't give it to him for his own benefit, but if, if you get something out of it, a minion, uh, then, then you can do it. So Rav Cook and others argued, if we're doing this for, the, for, for our benefit, because we it saves us from economic catastrophe. It provides us with a loophole in the laws of Shemitah, a much-needed loophole that would not be subject to Los Sechanim. Chazanish rejected this. He says the Torah doesn't make such, carve out such exceptions. He, he distinguishes between this Los Sechanim and that Los Sechanim, but the Chazanish says no such distinction. But Rav Cook and others, many other Gedolim said this was a second reason to argue Los Sechanim does not apply. There is a third reason Los Sechanim doesn't apply, again mentioned by Rav Cook and the other post who are lenient, and that is that and this is a kind of a, a little bit of a tricky uh, sounds like having your cake and eating it and that was what some of the objectors said they, they argued that Los is giving him a permanent enduring foothold in the land the non-Jew is not going to have the land Pashmita, it's going to revert to us, we're going to buy it back like the Chametz we buy back after Pesach and therefore the prohibition of Los doesn't apply other people said, like, what are you talking about? If, if, make up your mind. If you're pretending it's a real sale, then it's permanent. I mean, you're hoping it'll sell it back to you. But, you know, if it's a sale, it's a sale. If you're treating it like a joke, then it's not good enough for Shemitah either. You can't have it both ways. Some postman said you could. It, uh, it, we, 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 it can be a sham sale that we know we're going to get back. The same way we know we're going to get comments back every year. The, we know we're going to get it back. But Afal Pekain, since, since in practice we aren't giving them any realistic, any... The, the, the Jewish you know, security or ownership pastor of Israel has not actually been reduced due to these mechiras, uh, these uh, once every seven years mechiras aretz. So various posts have argued that this sale, you can, you can have it both ways, that this sale is good enough to, uh, 
allow us to be more lenient on Shemitah, but not good enough, but, but, but not enough of a sale, not permanent and real enough to be, uh, to, be, uh, to, be you know, to, to violate the prohibition of Los Echanim. So again, this is, a, this, was a ma- this, is, this is a major debate. The Chazanish was strict on these various arguments. Many others, both earlier and later than the Chazanish, were more lenient. But just, just to wind up, again, there's a lot more to say, obviously. We, we've just uh, mentioned some of the most uh, salient and interesting points of the debate. The, much of the mainstream Israeli rabbinate is lenient, the official rabbinate. Even a number of moderate Haredi authorities were lenient. Roshon Zaman Orbach, famously, when he wrote, he, he wrote one, of his, one, of his, one of his great classic halachic works, was called Madane Aretz. It was a work all about Shemitah. In the introduction, he gives a very remarkably detailed and precise uh, Discussion of the history of Hatimachira, how it evolved through the, all these various generations and rabbinic personalities. And he basically says, I'm not taking sides. He says, Chas uh, v'Shalom, these are Gedolei Torah on both sides. I'm not taking sides, he says. There, there, there are those who supported it, and I'm not mafakfaking it. There are those who are machmer, Kaddish Yomerlo. He does say that it is highly preferable to the extent possible to keep Shemitah properly and not rely on these loopholes and Haterim. He does, Ashrei uh, Chelkam, he says, of those who can keep Shemitah. And certainly the idea that the community should, should support people and should encourage it. In, in Rav Kook's time as well, there were, apparently there were those who, for ideological reasons, didn't want Shemitah kept and wanted everyone to rely on the Eterim. And they were actually apparently pressuring or threatening to pressure those who were trying to keep Shemitah to go along with them and rely on the Eterim Mechira. Rav Kook apparently was furious. He said, if anyone, if anyone dares do such a thing, he's going to withdraw his support from the Eterim Mechira entirely. And uh, if they want to have the Eterim for anyone, they had better let those who are trying to be strict and do things properly, let them alone and not, uh, and not try to impose this, this ideological conformist view on everyone. So the, the general attitude of Haredi Poskim, of, of, the, of, the, of the main, of, of Rabbanim, even those who supported, not just Haredi, even those who supported the Hatim Rechira has been that it's certainly an ideal to strive for is to avoid it to the extent that one can, to keep Shemitah properly, it's a great mitzvah, and to do it to the extent that one can, even those who had all the Hatim, even those who were lenient, not just B'Sha'as Chach Mamish, even those who were more willing to be lenient, generally said, it's not something that we ideally do, it's not something we're proud of doing, we do it because it's still necessary, it's still important, Rabbi Chaim Jachter says that he heard from Rav Herschel Schechter, I think, and Rabbi Menachem Genek. They both said that Rav Soloveitchik told the OU that they should not rely on Hatim Mechira, because even though there is considerable rabbinic support for it, the support was B'Sha'as Chak, and we in America, we, we don't have the same B'Sha'as Chak. The question is, if we don't buy it, will that put the Israeli farmers into a situation of Chak? That's a good question. That's a question of halacha in general, whether if a producer or vendor has a shasad chak, whether, that's, whether that, and he has a heter of shasad chak, or hefsen maruba, does that extend to the consumer to buy from him to help the chak of the producer? Alternatively, Rav Shalvechik may have felt that, there are, that Israel had enough of a market locally to not, to, that they wouldn't be suddenly placed into chak if American achsherim wouldn't rely on it. Be that as it may, the, the postkim in general have said that to the extent that one, many postkim have said, like Rishon Zalman, the, to the extent that one can, it's certainly admirable and praiseworthy to avoid relying on Hatim Mechira. Nevertheless, there is, uh, there, there is a tremendous amount of support for the Hatim Mechira, Shlomo Zalman himself, in various letters and chuvas, apparently who said that it's not black and white, that it's austere, they, they have ample support to rely on. And that's the situation today. Many Gidole Harabanim allow it. There are, there are also those, particularly in the Haredi world, who do not. And there are moderates who say that there's, you know, Makim but it's not an ideal Hatim, and therefore, to the extent that one can avoid it, one should avoid it.